0: Welcome to a bonus episode of the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. For last week's episode with IFA Stephen Jones, we had such a great discussion that we wanted to give you more. So check out episode 29 for how he advises clients to invest in this area and his general approach to product selection. Here, we dig more into some of the important factors to examine when helping clients select individual products. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, if you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at harmonco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this bonus episode. So we've had some listener feedback and we've got a request to discuss two things. So I'm going to ask you about a couple of things that we'd like to go into perhaps in a bit more detail into. And the first of those is fees. How do you think about fees and what sort of preferences do you have for fees? Because one of, one of the issues, I think, for the industry, for a lot of investors, is that it's an expensive industry to manage. The economies of scale are limited and fees are inevitably higher than other products.
1: Right. To advisors who are saying, oh, it's so much more expensive than mainstream, my answer is simple, grow up. The short answer is the providers in this space aren't going to attract millions and millions and millions, and millions of pounds of investment. They can't. Uh and they've got to run a business and we want them to be profitable in order to deliver the right type of service to our clients. So what matters is the comparative cost And what matters is the underlying structure of what they're aiming to achieve. So costs then become a relative thing, in my view. So if we've got an EIS where they're turning around and they genuinely believe they're not just doing it for compliance purposes, that they're aiming to exit quite early. Because, again, this is where an understanding of the EIS, and perhaps we need to talk about that in a minute, because as we both know, some EIS providers are looking to maintain, whether it's from a marketing point of view, they want a reasonable number of exits, on an Uh ongoing basis, which by definition means they're probably aiming to exit somewhere in that four to eight year space Uh because they want that going. They want clients to feel happy that they're getting returns. Probably, and I do appreciate there have been some astonishing exceptions to this comment, that means there's going to be a low multiple. So they're the guys who are saying we're aiming to give you, if you're lucky, two to three times your initial capital back. Well, for me, then the ongoing cost becomes more relevant. So what do I pay up front? And what am I paying on an ongoing basis? Because it's taking a bigger slice of a smaller cake. Yes, yes. Yeah. However, there are some fund managers going, look, you know, realistically, we're probably not even aiming to look to it. So we're looking for the unicorns in this world. We're looking for an eight-year-plus style thing. And we're looking for a multiple many times greater than two to three. And we'll both have heard some examples of what they could be. But then if you've got that, then there are two bits. A, they're going to be taking money for a longer time. So I still want it not to be outrageous. But then, when I talk to the clients, I have found that most clients were going, well, actually, if I'm in for a long haul like that, and the multiple is going to be so much multiple, it's going to be so much greater. So what if they're taking a bigger amount? And then I find that the waterfall approach for charges I find quite attractive, because. So what do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> well, essentially, it's a sliding scale, isn't yeah. it? whereby if they achieve a multiple of X, they're going to get Y. If they achieve a multiple of X times, they're going to get Y times. And I have found clients on the whole are happy to share the spoils. They're much more resistant to higher initial and higher ongoing. But t- sharing the, the rewards at the end, I find that most clients are happy with. Mm-hmm. So, so, so
0: basically what you're saying, client-like performance fees. And it's, it's interesting you talk about waterfalls there, because I know one or two managers have tried... Hierarchical work or hierarchical form of disease where you pay, I don't know, 20% up to something and then 30% yes. above another. And they've had a lot of resistance from the IFA market on that.
1: We haven't, but so I'm going to say I think that's how you explain it. What I have got a resistance to, and this is a me that I convey to clients, I think there should be a hurdle. And that is actually when you talk about some of the criteria. I don't see why any fund manager should get well paid for simply being there you know we're not paying you to have a nice life and we're paying you to deliver a reward a performance outcome to the clients so if you're saying oh look we're going to take the convenience 20 percent on any gain in my view get lost Why can't we say the first 20% or whatever the figure is in that particular space is actually for the client? And then you can start sharing the spoils after that. That's what your reasonable fee income on an ongoing basis should be. And that's where, of course, recent innovations like the cost and charges calculator that ESA and Co-Investor, yeah, yeah, right, where they've now got free to access for our face to look at and to see whether the costs and charges of a particular EIS fund are reasonable in that space for the type of thing doing. It's not the be-all and end-all. I'm sure that there's going to be improvements to that system, but it's a great starting point. If only for the advisor to turn around to the fund manager to go, well, look, you're very expensive, convince me as to why you're worth those fees.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've we've had a few calculated in our reports since I started doing them, that was, I, I, I think we might even have been the, the first people to do it. And there's a huge variation in fees between what different people are doing. So, yeah, and, and, I'm, I'm, and sometimes I'm not entirely convinced why.
1: Well, what I find interesting in that debate, and I, um, again, I'm not going to name the fund manager, is that they were reasonably expensive. They said, well, look at all the things that we do. I have to say, no, I can look at all the things that you tell me that you do, but would you take offence if I actually ask what value it's adding to the process compared to a fund manager? It says, well, actually, we find that we have a rigid, fixed debate with them once a quarter and we've got somebody on the board. So when you say you do all these things, that you provide all these management services and all the rest of it, aren't you charging for those? So why are you telling me that's an advantage? Because actually you're getting it both ways. And that ties in with another aspect of this. And in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have a feeling it was you guys who wrote that, in my view, seminal analysis of all the different way charges are expressed. So there's a myriad number of terminology. And that's horrendous for IFAs to try to get a head around. Yeah,
0: I, I think I produced a list once from our database and there was 40 something fee names i think
1: there's almost 50 different names for fees and and as an advisor we can't we don't have time to draw that comparative analysis so that's where cost and charges calculators that are coming out are really starting to help and that's where you guys can help enormously in your reports that you produce for free you know you cover that aspect in it as well so any advisor should be using those reports and no i know you're paying me to say that i just think we should
0: (laughs) thank you How do you think about fees when it comes to that split between direct fees and fees charged to companies? Right.
1: As you're unquestionably aware, there was a trend where it's better for the client if the underlying charges are handed over to the companies underneath. There's two aspects, isn't there? There's no doubt that lots of clients like that initial tax relief. And of course, some firms say, well, we take the fees out. So you get close to 100% of the initial sum that you've invested. And certainly as an advisor, when we report to clients, we show them the gross investment they made, the actual net investment that was made, Uh and then the ongoing charges, and we report annually like that there's a little question that some clients four or five years down the line do look at the ones where they haven't got tax relief on somewhere near 100 and go, hmm, because of course that's working. So that's a psychological thing that we have to work out. We're very transparent in the way that we do it. It's also worth just briefly, and I'm digressing slightly, saying that when we do the what we call a wealth map, if I get a chance to tell you what well, that is later, but we actually only show EISs as the nominal investment they've made. We actually don't reflect any changes in the valuation. I'll tell you why if you get onto that that chance later. So going back to your point then about the investee companies, um, I think fundamentally there's no getting away from the fact there's X amount of money in the pot. So actually we almost disregard it and say what we're, tot- what we're really looking at is the total costs that are going out. Because if they're going out, then they're not being used to develop the company that we want to invest in. So to an extent, I think it's a red herring. I want to understand it, and I want to understand what's happening. But really, I'm far more interested. If a client said they did a gross investment of, just to make a 100,000, but actually only 80,000 is working for them in the investment for whatever reason, I'm more interested in that compared to the breakdown, if I've got a comparison where there's 92 working in the, in the underlying investment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a challenge, because certainly economic theory would suggest if someone's charging a fee to the company, the company's effectively going to raise the price to offset that. Now, I've had at least one fund manager argue that basically company management isn't that sophisticated. Yeah, maybe in detail terms is probably right. I think in broad terms, I, I disagree. And certainly I know there have been cases where managers have co-invested alongside each other with different fee structures and paid different prices. So one's paid uh, the initial fee has been effectively added to the share price.
1: And I think that absolutely illustrates the point entirely, which supports my arguments. And one of the reasons I feel so strongly about that, and it's something that I've learned by talking to the underlying companies, is that they feel that way. And that's where really I picked up that particular viewpoint from. And also because what many IFAs don't realize is actually it's a very competitive space for funds to attract those underlying companies. They're attending beauty parades because the smarter underlying companies actually are going, hi, guys, this is us. Now, who's going to pitch to be the fund manager raising capital for us? So it's much more competitive than many advisors think. Yeah. Um, so and that that could mean that actually the, the fund manager you want is pricing themselves out from a particular area. So there's a lot in it.
0: I, I I am seeing a couple of fund managers who charge all the fees to investors and no fees to companies, and they are making the pitch that this is the way to get the best companies because yeah. if effectively you're your pricing. Now, the, the pick a company, you know, to my mind, a company should be picking a manager Firstly, because of what they can do for the company, and the fees are secondary. At the same point, if if the difference is quite a lot, then these things can offset
1: each other. And there is another aspect, and I think it's the psychological aspect of it, and that is people don't value things they haven't paid for. And I actually do think that the client should definitely pay, which is why um, I think they need to see that there's a cost for it not to be pretend otherwise. But equally, I think that those underlying companies should have skin in the game and be paying for service because if you do that and this is true for all of us and this isn't a financial services thing if you're paid for something you want service Uh and i think just as much as the fund manager is trying to help and support and develop the underlying investment company the investment company should be saying what are the terms of our agreement are you delivering to what we expected and should be holding them to account and it's interesting you don't always see that accountability and transparency Um, and i want to see that when we analyze companies So that kind of suggests you're thinking that fees, you need a balance.
0: The fact that companies are paying something, they're going to make sure they're getting something for that money. And at the same time, clients, it's the same idea almost.
1: Yes. Uh, I mean, would that become higher than the fact, do we believe that the fund managers got a good portfolio for our clients? No. But if we were trying to drill down further, yes.
0: So the other topic that we were asked about was past performance. And I know the SCA sit there and say, past performance, no guided future. Yep. I look at academic research and venture capital and suggest there is some degree of performance persistence. Yeah. How does it figure into your thinking as, as an IFA in terms of selecting products?
1: okay, I should really toe the party line here in terms of compliance. Um, <laughs> give a slightly flippant answer and say, if I know I've got a three-legged donkey entering um, you know, a race, I'm probably not going to bet bet on it because the three-legged donkey, donkey came last in the previous race and the previous race before that. So, but being more serious... This really more applies to VCTs than it does EISs, because EISs, by definition, unless it's a team, we we spoke about that earlier, with past experience, that I think is really the only thing probably in the EIS space you can count as previous record.
0: Yeah, and I think Um, in the EIS space, the data generally, there's some people building track records that are substantial, but there's very, you know, I can think of two or three firms basically that have track records that are approaching meaningful I I think the the data just isn't there from the
1: vast majority of EIS funds. No, because there haven't been enough exits. And also, um, we're not seeing there's a separate service that you can pay for that type of data that you get to see anyway. But you do need that. But you're right, there isn't enough of it. Because an advisor, if I just relied on past performance only in the EIS space, I'm probably down to, as you say, a very small handful of funds that I would base a decision on if I was using past performance only. VCTs, that's not true. Right. There are, there are enough long-standing VCTs, you can, and you can extract that information from any number of sources by the internet papers, analysts, to be able to look at track The record. IAC
0: website does it.
1: Yeah, and so if you were using the sifting criteria track record, pretty insignificant in the airspace very significant really in the VCT space.
0: How do you allow for the fact that a lot of VCTs have had to change what they're doing? So obviously, you know, back in 2015, 2017, we've had various rules changes. So replacement capital went out, some management buyouts stopped. We had ones of investing in renewable energy, that's had to stop. And when I look at some of the funds. The actual exits over the last few years have come from that part of the portfolio and that's been kind of dominating returns
1: right and that's harder yeah. because that requires you to drill down and you see that's actually almost uh, i don't know if it's liberal on your part brought me back to saying that we're having to use an analyst for the reports to bring that out to us because that detailed breakdown is actually more difficult where the returns have come from because unless you start looking at the individual reporting accounts and ask detailed questions and that labor of love we simply don't have time for so therefore we are reliant on those third party reports for that degree of analysis you're absolutely right i'm aware that the returns the reasons for the returns are changing. And, and purely because we talk about EIS as well, of course, we've also got to bear in mind there's a significant change in the way the EISs were. Absolutely. And, and there are still too many companies that talk about their past performance bringing in a completely inappropriate set of <laughs> criteria.
0: They're talking um, about renewable energy products when it's, they're not getting anything
1: like that anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was, that was a, a sea change in the EIS space, and it's wrong for companies to use that. So it's worth getting that out there. In the VCT space, of course, that's created a different issue. Should, in fact, we be looking at forgetting or de- reducing the emphasis on past performance there and instead start saying back to the other point, who's the team, what's their focus and what's their expertise in that particular focus? And, of course, there's one or two relatively recently new VCTs who are saying, actually, we don't have the legacy issues. Um, that some of the old VCTs have got we're now investing in the new paradigm now okay I've heard that line many times Um, (laughs) we all know that the world's going to change not Um, so (laughs) what matters isn't it's a new paradigm what matters is your expertise and the relevance that you're bringing to it so again it sounds like I'm stuck record because I almost feel like I'm concentrating on one particular criteria I do think the skill set around the management team is essential and the, the track record of the management team less so the investment performance for the reasons that you've spoken about.
0: And if a manager has changed what they're doing, do you look for changes in in the management team to adjust to the the new paradigms
1: and new rules? Right. I can think of a VCT that we became unhappy with where there were some departures and – Unfortunately, marketing teams are brilliant at explaining why the departures are absolutely, you know, I've got to pursue other interests. I want to have a career change, whatever it is. And unfortunately, we both know that in many occasions, that's simply not true. It's a push being dressed up in some particular way. So that is a flag, but it's very difficult to understand what the flag signifies. So therefore, what we have to do, and I go back to that particular company, is we look at What's the uh, roles and responsibility of the people who've gone and what type of marketing material are we hearing about what they're looking at at the moment? So if it's an obvious one, they don't fit. That's a pretty easy bit, in which case it then becomes which direction are they going? Who have they brought in and what's their track record? But again, that's an extra bit of due diligence, but it doesn't actually take that long. That's the bit I would emphasize. That type of thing, because it is so public, isn't as difficult as many advisers would imagine.
0: So the other thing I wanted to ask about products is how do you think about the new products and new entrants? You've touched on this a little bit, but I see a lot of new entrants in TIS, and and, and the last five years has been a huge number of particular. You mentioned there's been a couple into the VCT space as well. How do you as an IFA think about these? Are you sort of saying, okay, do you just want to wait two or three years to see if they're still going to be around or...? or I just don't consider a new entrance. or I love it. And
1: how do you think about that? Okay, I wish I had a great answer to that, because I'm torn. Um, I suppose the honest answer is I haven't got a good answer, which is a terrible thing, perhaps, to admit. I do accept that a new VCT probably grown out of uh, EIS funds. So their particular investments have got to a certain size, and now they're in that space. And so, therefore, they've probably got a few stars with whom they're running with that particular area. What I also recognise is that in the VCT space, the big returns have tended to come from when they exit. So, they get that capital bump, as you know, and they're yeah. then distributed yeah. it by dividends. It- and that is, from the evidence that I've seen, more likely to happen with those earlier investments because of the exits. So there is an attraction that that you get in early, basically, and you ride it out hoping that the VCT is going to have a little bit of pressure to have one or two stars because they're going to want to attract serious money. So what we have tended to do is to put some smaller amounts in some of the younger VCTs okay. just to… Just to ride that particular wave but generally speaking if we're looking at VCTs we're looking at that fairly steady dividend stream and so therefore we tend to go with tried and tested but what is interesting um, is that literally two weeks ago we finished looking at every single VCT that we've ever invested in and their performance since day one because we don't tend to churn them and I've been quite astonished at the range of performance over time which I hadn't expected, not in the VCT space.
0: Yeah, I, I, as someone who looks at this performance figures moderately regularly, there is, yeah, if you look at five-year performance, you've got things that have doubled and things that are down 80%. Yeah,
1: yeah. And perhaps another time, you know, that would be a future discussion. But I would love to get my head around more why that's being and whether it's indicative of what's going into the future, because of course funds do wax and wane, and that's acceptable. But it's whether it's symptomatic of in fact just a poor investment manager.
0: Yeah, without naming names, there are a couple of managers who seem to have produced quite a lot of poor performance in the VCT space. And coming back to your analogy, you you can't help but wonder if they are the three-legged donkeys. Though one of them I know has had a lot of team changes over the last few years. So. Who knows?
1: I mean, for me, both VCT, less so, but certainly the EIS, they're both relatively immature compared to the mainstream funds that advisors talk and speak about. And, of course, as we're seeing, gradually more information, more behaviour, uh, sorry, better behaviour in terms of transparency and accountability. And certainly one of the big issues with in the EIS space is that corporate culture, because, of course, they're entrepreneurial. But corporate culture is essential if they're going to grow to be a much bigger thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You need something to keep that because you, these are long-term investments. And if you don't have that culture in place in five years' time, the if the culture changes completely, yeah. who knows what it could be?
1: Yeah. 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 No, I get that.
0: How does the diversification figure into your
1: thinking? You kind of touched on this a little bit, but... Okay, well, I, I said earlier that there are fundamentally two, two ways to approach it. One is if we have a purely transactional client that's a one-off. We've got very, very few of those. Where the diversification, the diversification will come in is how we want to approach it. Normally, we try, try to find out for clients going into, and I'm going to use the ICs rather than VCTs, whether they're interested in a particular space, and that does happen. Um, It can be very specific, like my elderly lady, or it can just be a general sector. A client likes the fact they're in the pharmaceutical space, um, the the medical space, or the financial service. It doesn't matter. They have a particular interest. So we will then look to build diversification within that. Don't tend to like that because I think that's too narrow on the whole. Mm -hmm. Or we just say, right, there are lots and lots of sectors that we both know. So we then just tend to say, okay, we want to build a portfolio typically every three, four year period. And of that portfolio, we want to try and pick the best one or two in each sector. And of course, that will change over a period of time. And that that's actually much more interesting because then you start, because A, you're trying to look at the way the fund manager's work in that space and B, the expertise that they're bringing into that space. And the criteria that you use, whilst there are fundamentals that we both appreciate, when you drill down, it then starts diversifying in terms of what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So if we picked BR, because that might be a different one. BR, as we know, whilst that's not been a subject of our main conversation, that's another area that has, is tax advantage that we, we haven't really touched upon. There are some fund managers in that space who who are in property in its widest sense, whether it's care homes, hotels, development of commercial property, even residential property. But then there's also going to be other aspects like renewables, obviously, um, arable farming, what I'm going to call consumer goods, whether they're providing a product that gets installed somewhere and they're getting a license and royalties from it. So there's a much bigger breadth. Now, some people in that space are simply narrowing and focusing on a few which they think are very very profitable, um, and of course there was a spectacular failure, wasn't there? Yeah. Um, a year ago, and it's not. This isn't the place for us to discuss why that happened, but they had quite a narrow focus. But on paper it looked like it's quite diversified, but it wasn't. When when the failure happened, and we started to learn much more about it. So I do tend to want uh, either the VCT or a BR product to have quite a range, unless. The client itself, um, itself is allowing us to create a portfolio and thereby creating that diversification. So, as an extreme example, if we picked two BR products, we wouldn't say we're diversified because we've picked two different fund managers. We would say we're diversified because one's into commercial property, the other's got no commercial property.
0: Yeah. So, so there's a lot of big BR products which have two-thirds of energy and a third of property is kind of the asset allocation. And yes. if you pick another one that looks very similar, you're not really
1: diversifying the assets. Absolutely. The and that's what I mean. So I would say sectorial diversification is perhaps the biggest one for us, not provider diversification
0: yeah i i think i think that has actually got harder in eis because we've got some generalists and we've got people who are doing technology not not very yeah exactly so, i say some the majority are doing technology in some shape and then you've got to say okay what within technology are they doing and some of the descriptions that they say oh yes we're into digital something and it's like well, what isn't digital in technology, <laughs> kind of? Well, you know, there's drug development, basically. So to extend extent you, individual com- companies are pretty idiosyncratic, that's that very helpful. But in terms of sector diversification, yeah, you do have some real niche
1: specialists. Absolutely. I mean, an easy example off the top of my head would be anything in the royalty of films, music, things like that. And that's a very specific area. And there are one or two uh, EIS providers who seem to be making that work, but they've pivoted because, of course, film tarnished has been tarnished. General film investment, but they've 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 worked quite well. The the new newer guys in that space, building on their expertise, but recognising it needs to be presented differently, and indeed the focus of the underlying investment. It's, it's in a different
0: way. business model that they're using because it had to be. It is. Um yes. and probably
1: a better business model, I think. For that's my sentiment. Yes. Because before being blunt, it was, you're, you're going to earn an awful big fortune when this film is a success. It doesn't take long. And I'm speaking as somebody who used to get invited to the Cairns Film Festival um, regularly, years ago. Uh, it doesn't take long to realise, actually, most films don't make a lot of money. So that's about the biggest bet you're going to make other than your lottery um, ticket.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think, again, in no the discussion, a lot of these Products had structural issues around where the returns came from and who, who actually got the profit if it appeared, because I think you know the waterfalls left
1: investors very much <laughs> at the bottom. I'm tempted to joke that the special effects teams that are in films were, were also employed by the creative accounting teams, um, <laughs> <laughs> because even when I had an accountant specialising in that space talk me through it, and, okay, I recognize I'm not an accountant, I didn't understand how it was possible for the client who invested to make money because it almost seemed that all these people in between could take slice after slice after slice, and if there was a bigger profit, they seemed to be able to take more of that profit. And yet the person at the end who invested was just left to see what was left. So, no, that doesn't mean to say I don't think the funds in that space aren't doing a good job, because I think, as you've said, I think they've pivoted and I think they're doing something different. And I think advisors need to recognise it's not film in the old way that film was. They need to ask the representative of those firms to explain it better to them so they get, and in fact, it's a different business proposition.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's that challenge when you have a, a bad reputation already and, and it takes a while to change that. So you mentioned earlier about reporting and, and the other area that we haven't really spoken about is what do you do once you've invested in, in, in a fund or a product?
1: Okay, um, I take it you mean specifically for the EASBR and VCT. The treatment's the, the same. We produce a reporting table and the clients get it. I mean, we highlight some columns, but fundamentally, as I touched on earlier, they get to see the gross investment they made the net investment after all costs and charges. We have a section which is a very, very short paraphrased narrative if we've had any updates from the client because that gives us a chronology of events over the years, which makes it much, much easier when a client asks about something five or six years down the line. And then we actually do do two things. We emphasize, again, the current value as per the original investment. At one stage, we used to show what the value was with loss relief, i.e. you got totally wiped out. But it's exceptional for a fund to wipe you out. Individual underlying investments, yes, but not the fund. So I did change that stance. We now just say if your net investment was 23,000, then we say that your current value is 23,000. In the narrative, and we've done deliberately because we want it to be in the chronology, we say that they've recently revalued it at X but we don't show it in the column that uh, the adds totals up in a client's portfolio. And so that is very, very deliberate. It's about managing expectations, and it's about reinforcing the point to a client that actually there's no way that we can predict whether you will make any money at all, none at all. And we have found that's now worked very, very well for us. It it brings the point back every time. Yes, every client does look at the chronology and go, ooh, they say my 23,000 is now Uh 29,000. But the totals don't reflect it in any way, shape or form of the portfolio. What we do find terrible, and I'm very well aware, as I'm sure you are too, the work that's going on, significant work is going on to try now to produce much much better reporting there's third party agencies that are now trying to provide a service that will do it for you but put per- and many of the underlying companies, sorry many of the fund managers are, have now got portals to their sites there are some that don't and we are very close to saying actually we can't deal with you and the reason being is the hard the easy bit relatively speaking is getting the client to invest the hard bit for us is reporting and not least because as an advisor and it works when you talked about tension it's worth just brief, briefly saying there's another tension if a client gave me a hundred thousand to invest in the mainstream i i can charge for that in some ways whether i'm charging it reflected in my pure fee or whether it's funds under management i'm getting paid on an ongoing basis when they have an eis portfolio in particular pretty well you don't get any ongoing fees so it's a pure overhead now we compensate for that because we'll just charge the fee but lots of firms don't but the real issue here is that the overhead for reporting on an ongoing basis and eis in particular is onerous it's incredibly bitty we did one for a client quite recently admitted they've got a big portfolio it took one of my guys a day and a half to get all of the reporting information for one client big portfolio but one client Mm -hmm. Now, that has got to change and the industry's got to change it. And to my mind, either the consolidators are going to make it work or the individual companies have got to recognize, stop being so proprietary about your data. Start saying, well, actually, we will allow this information to be automatically integrated to some type of national portal. Because the problem they have got is that the the, all IFAs pretty well operate back-office systems. If the provider goes down the line of, well, we'll integrate with your system, we'll integrate with your system, there's quite a lot of them out there. Most of them don't have the technical resource or indeed the money to do that. But there are a couple of nationally recognized integration systems, and they should be providing those interfaces. Because I think more and more advisors, as they wake up to the overhead of reporting, are actually going to start making a criteria. As i said, whilst at the moment we won't deselect anybody on the shortlist, it has now become part of our criteria. How easily can we get the reporting information? That's interesting. It's
0: where I sit, I'm very focused on the investment decision. And so you sort of don't really appreciate that the back office thing is still, we we assume technology has kind of sorted everything out, but it hasn't really. (coughs) Not at all.
1: And the whole point is, when it comes to the heart of it, Advisors are service industries. So we need to provide good service. And the problem is, our clients, and I've had this very conversation with clients, they go, Well, don't you just push a button to get the information? Well, actually, no. One of my guys was on hold for 45 minutes because we we'd tried emailing that particular provider for two weeks to get a response and they hadn't got around to answering. And we were reaching a deadline for the meeting with you. So somebody had to sit on the phone until they answered.
0: Yes. So it sounds
1: like that manager is not going to get any business in the future. They're not. No, not until they can confirm that they have a solution. And that is an issue, and in fact probably I've underplayed it, that's an issue that many advisors really do need to build in. It's not the focus, cannot exclusively be, is it the right investment? The cost and charges, there has to be something that says actually I've got to report on this on an ongoing basis. What's your mechanism? And prove it to me. And actually, although it's outside our conversation, uh, which custodians is relevant as well? Um. Some cust- some custodians are a lot better than others
0: and that's a very underappreciated area well it was underappreciated until the Riker failure a couple of years ago so
1: um indeed but we're trying to put more emphasis on that and it it is part of our selection criteria but only in as much we want to be quite clear who it is what we don't have enough data on yet is which custodians we're actually going to go well actually we don't want to deal with you for that reason. I'm not aware of there being any data and analysis on that
0: yet. I'm not aware of any either, so I can't help you with that one. So what I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions. And so you mentioned earlier about all the virtues of the IS and VCT industry, and we all know it's great. What would you like to change about it?
1: Okay, I think actually what we've just been talking about, the Mm -hmm. reporting. It's not good enough. So that's the one thing. It's got Mm -hmm. to be that.
0: Okay. Okay. Lockdown's been fantastic for my reading. I get, I get through five books a month at the moment. So any books out there that you'd like to, that you like
1: and would recommend to people? Okay, I have a book that's in my stable and that reflects who we are as a firm. The vast majority of our clients are reasonably wealthy. And I don't mean by that there's some astronomical figure, but they've certainly in the hundreds of thousands that they've got invested in assets. Um, outside pension funds. And when we get to that stage, very often, because of my age, I suppose, as well, they have, tend to have family, not always, but 99% of them do. And so we normally ask them to read a book called Family Inc.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, by McCormick. Don't hold me to that, but I think it's McCormick. We'll post the link in the show notes. <laughs> uh, okay. But the reason I like it is because what it's about is getting somebody to effectively be the family chief financial officer and the responsibilities and to bring business principles to running your finances. And it even starts from the very simple premise that it recognises that financial education in many countries, not just this country, is abysmal. And it's sort of saying, well, actually, if you you wouldn't employ uh, um, a CFO without them being appropriately qualified, without them implementing appropriate structures and processes and procedures. If you're managing family wealth, then you should be doing the same thing. The emotion, the subjectivity of it is important because money's there to serve you as a family, but bring rigor and discipline. And it's brilliant for getting you to look at the way that you manage your money and your investments in a different way. The downside of it, is that it universally equips your clients to start holding you more to account. <laughs> so you've got to be willing for that. So if, if anybody picks the book up and starts reading it, make sure you've read it first so, and make sure that your working practices reflect it. But that instilling of financial disciplines is fantastic for our clients. We've had brilliant feedback from those who've adopted it. Excellent. So what do you wish you knew when you started financial planning that you know now? clients are irrational (laughs) Um, they're emotional they say one thing and do something else they don't really want the facts in the vast majority of the cases so yes i wish i had understood actually be you tell the story of of of, of them and build the picture because they want to it's their life they want to know their story and what you want to do is to fit into their life story And I wish I'd understood that. It wasn't, uh, if you like, an analyst's stance, which is where I came from. Here are the facts. Let's make an unemotional decision. In financial planning, that rarely happens. The advisor's job is to help bring them more discipline and to act as that foil to what they do. But you've got to understand, actually, they're pretty emotional. And I wish I'd understood that much, much earlier.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I can understand how that makes your job so much harder makes it more interesting as well, of course, and rewarding. True. Indeed. So if people want to find out more about what you or what Clear Solutions are doing, where should they go?
1: Well, directly, I would say ring the website. Uh, Sorry, ring the website, look at the website. But actually, really, pick up the phone, talk to me. You know, I've mentored a number of uh, other advisors in the past. You know, I've been assessor of practice standards. But more importantly, I remember when I started how there were people who were so freely gave of their time and I always appreciated that. And I've always tried to do the same thing. If I've got the time, I will happily help. Pick okay. up the phone. excellent. So
0: thank you very much for coming on today, Stephen. That's given me a really different perspective from anyone else we've had on the podcast before. So thank you very much. Pleasure. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.